Three years ago to the week, um, we had a sermon that has become somewhat uh, famous or infamous or legendary. I don't know exactly the word to put to it. But in the sermon, uh, the, the line that's often repeated that many of you say is, when I said this, that met of you, we are dying. That was three years ago uh, this week that we had that particular sermon. I had uh, recently read up to that point a book by Tom Rainer. It was called Autopsy of a Deceased Church. And Tom Rainer had looked at uh, many of the, the churches that had to shut their doors because they didn't have enough people, uh, they couldn't pay the bills, and he began to look and observe and interview and made some determinations, what did those churches have in common, and he put them out in this book. And as I read that book, I was struck that many of those symptoms, if you will, that he recognized in dying churches were symptoms that we had. And uh, God led in such a way that in time I was able to present those things to you. And I just found it very interesting this week that as I was considering 1 Samuel chapter 7, that particular sermon came to my mind and I went back and looked and lo and behold, it was three years ago to the week. And uh, we recognize, I want to start by recognizing this, the faithfulness of God. The faithfulness of God over the last three years. Uh, an Ebenezer, we'll, we'll make that make sense to you in a little bit, but this is a bit of an Ebenezer moment for us as we would look back to this. But I want to give you just some of those things that we talked about and we noted and remind you where we were. Again, we have not arrived, uh, but we have grown uh, because of God's grace. One of the things that we pointed out was this, not living out of the gospel of Jesus Christ, spiritually stagnant in other words. Uh, our lives were just going through the humdrum, but uh, that whole idea of, of Christ living in us, being crucified with him, didn't seem to resonate very well for many of us, and we struggled with many things. Not sharing the hope of Jesus with others, not doing the work of an evangelist and sharing Christ with others, and yes, we have a long way to go in that particular area, but praise the Lord that over the last three years we have seen growth in that area. Many of you are now sharing actively the hope of Christ with people that you work with. You're taking those opportunities uh, to share his truth with others. And speaking of that, uh, next Sunday and the following Sunday, we have another Make Him Known course which focuses on that very thing. Those courses will follow the morning service and they last about an hour, hour and a half and we'll provide lunch for you. You can sign up on the back table if you want to participate in that. If we don't get participants then we'll have to scrap it until we get to the summer months again. Uh, but I just want to make you aware of that. But I am grateful for the faithfulness of God that we can look back and say we have seen His grace at work and we've seen growth in that particular area in our church. Here was a big one, not praying. Not praying for the Spirit to work. I was guilty. I still am guilty from time to time. Uh, but I was guilty of, of getting up and preaching and doing all of the work of ministry, and many of you were guilty of the same thing, just doing those things with an absence of prayer. Doing it in our own power, and our own ability, and our own wisdom, and it wasn't getting us very far. 
But praise God that prayer has become a central part to what we do here at this church. And we want that to continue to grow and to continue to develop. And so I thank God for that. One of the other things mentioned was not sacrificing for the sake of Christ and for the sake of others. And that, that included all sorts of things. Uh, finances were tough during that time. Uh, just finding people to do ministry was tough during that time. Uh, but I am grateful for the many of you that have begun to sacrifice for the sake of Christ, following what we see in the scriptures. Being preference-driven is a huge church killer. When I want my own way, and if I don't get my own way, then I'm going to fight you, or I'm going to leave and go do something somewhere else. And I thank God for the unity we have right now. And it's not unity that's based on uh, what you wear, how you school your kids, um, uh, what, what football team you like, or any of those things. It's unity based upon the gospel of Jesus Christ and the difference that he's made in our lives. We've got to keep that central. And uh, the other thing that was mentioned was this, lacking bold and decisive leadership. And that one really fell on me. I was stagnant. And uh, not willing to address some of those things that needed to be addressed. And I thank God for the grace that he showed then and continues to show in my life. And I have a long way to go in that area. But one of the scriptures we looked at that I think was significant, it was just mentioned a couple of weeks ago here by one of the men, was Revelation 2. That's the text we went to that day three years ago where uh, Jesus is speaking to the church at Ephesus. And he says this, and I'm going to jump around just a little bit. He says, I know your works and your toil. And then he says, I know uh, you're enduring patiently and you're bearing up and, uh, for my name's sake. But then he says this, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. That you've abandoned that love that you had at first. And he says, remember Remember, think back, therefore, from where you have fallen and repent. Repent. Do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you. I will remove your lampstand unless you repent. And that word repent became a repeated theme. We had a full series that followed that that took us through a couple months where we focused on this idea of repentance that we needed to change or we were going to die. That was the reality. And God was faithful, he was merciful, he was gracious, and by his spirit, he began to put flesh back on the, the dry, dead bones. He began to breathe life back into this congregation that he so, so desperately loves. And we want to give him praise for that. We're currently experiencing um, reaping the benefits, I would say, of his grace and his faithfulness. Uh, through that time. But repentance, as we have repeated over and over again, is never a one and done thing. We can't say, well, I, I repented, I, I took care of that. No, repentance is something that's a daily practice. Repentance is something that we're constantly aware of in our lives. Because as we so often see, we are very, very prone to wander. And we have to keep that in our perspective. Jumping into our story in the context as we've looked at Joshua and Judges and Ruth and now Samuel, all of them have emphasized for us the faithfulness of Yahweh to his people. 
Over and over again, his inexpressible, and here's that Hebrew word, his inexpressible chesed, meaning that he is covenantly faithful towards his people. Apart from Yahweh and his chesed, Israel would have had the plug pulled on them time and time again so that they could just simply die as a result of their own decisions and their own sin. And the most recent example of Yahweh's Hesed was just last week uh, when they, the Israelites, thought it was going to be a great idea to bring the Ark of the Covenant to the battle with the Philistines. And they brought it, and what happened? It got taken. They lost the battle, they ran, and the Ark was taken. And Israel thought for sure He's done with us now. He's left. As a matter of fact, uh, Phineas, one of the high priest's sons who died in that particular battle, his responsibility was to care for the ark. His wife went into labor once she heard that the ark was taken, and she died as a result of her labor. But before she died, she named their child Ichabod, meaning the glory has departed. In other words, what she meant to say by naming her child Ichabod is Yahweh has left the building. He's gone. But Yahweh didn't leave, did he? He came back. He came back because he loves his people. He isn't done with Israel. And let me tell you this right now. He's not done with you either. Some of you may be feeling that right now, that Yahweh seems quite absent, that he seems like he's just left you alone to deal with these things on your own. He has not and he will not abandon you. In fact, last week we left off with that phrase that Chuck read this morning, 1 Samuel 7, 2, and it says, and all the house of Israel lamented after Yahweh. What's happening there? Yahweh is wooing his people back to him. Uh, he's drawing them in. The rest of chapter 7 deals with this revival that they experience. And that's what we're going to focus our attention on this morning. What does it begin with, though? Well, it begins with a call to repentance. I mean, right out of the gate, verse 3, Samuel, who is now fully established as the prophet, the premier prophet in Israel, he calls the people to repentance. Repentance. But what does repentance mean? What does repentance look like? Well, how does he word it? What does he tell them to do? He says specifically, return to the Lord with all your heart. And then he says this, put away the foreign gods and the Asherah. He calls them to put away their false gods. Israel had gone back into worshiping the Baals, the Asherah, the other Canaanite pagan gods that were around them. And he says, you've got to get rid of those things. Get back to your first love, Israel. But throwing those gods and really the pleasures that those gods brought into the trash was well, not enough. It's not enough. They also have to pursue Yahweh. Return to me, he says. And what does he say after that? He says, with all your heart. Now that would probably pique the ear of an Israelite because Deuteronomy chapter 6 is a famous text. It's the Shema. And it says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. 
If you've ever been in the house of a, uh, an Orthodox Jew or you've ever seen them maybe walking down the street of a city, uh, sometimes on the side of their house in the doorway, they'll have a little box that's there. Or sometimes they'll have a little box that hangs between the, the frontlets of their eyes. And in that box is that verse. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. <clears throat> I think Jesus made it a little more famous when they said, what's the greatest command? What did he quote? Deuteronomy 6. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart. Samuel uses the same terminology. You've got to pursue him with all of your heart. True repentance. And we have to get this because we're very easily confused on this. True repentance requires action. Um, emotion is not enough. Uh, somebody said it so well in this context of discipleship that change doesn't happen until change happens. And, and repentance will be noted by the fruit of repentance. Israel had to both formally and also functionally turn away from the false gods and turn to the one true God, Yahweh. And one ceremonial way that they, they showed that uh, is, is when Samuel had called Israel together in Mitzvah, which, by the way, if you're just kind of thinking through a map of Israel, Mitzvah is about five to ten miles north of Jerusalem. It's very near a city called Ramah. That's where Samuel called home. That's where he built an altar to the Lord. And so he called all of Israel together at Mitzvah. And what they were doing is they were pouring out water to Yahweh. Now, if you read in uh, the book of Exodus where the law is given or, or Numbers, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, any of that, you're not going to find a ceremony where Yahweh says, I want you to pour out water to me. But what they're doing here is something that's, that's pretty particular for them. They're, they're basically saying, by fasting from water, we're pouring it out to you instead, Yahweh. The nourishment that I need from the water that I drink, I need you more. I need you more. And so they're signifying that by taking the water that they would normally drink and pouring it out in a fast to Yahweh. As if they're kind of thirsty right now. They're thirsty for Yahweh. They want more of Him. And I would say this, met of you like Israel, we must remain repentant. Not a one and done thing. We have to remain in repentance. We cannot cling to uh, our, our God's little g. We can't grow comfortable with the idols that we love, but instead we must passionately, actively, and undeniably be following and pursuing more of Jesus, more of him. But we love our idols. I love my idols. We grow comfortable with our idols. We love to cling to bitterness, don't we? We love to let anger linger. And we love to, to plot revenge as somebody has hurt us. We want to hurt them in response. We love to, to have our own way. We, we love to be right and we love to get our preferences. No matter what the issue, really, we love our comfort. I love my entertainment. I love my food. 
We love our selfish sexual gratification that may come through means of pornography or some relationship that we have apart from the marriage covenant. I could, I could stand here, you could chime in, we could list sin after sin that we love to cling to, we love to serve. Let me give you just a list that the Apostle Paul gives in Galatians. He says this, these are the works of the flesh, sexual immorality or impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions and divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. would also say at some other point that covetousness is idolatry. We are where, let me ask it this way, um, where are you choosing something over Jesus? Where, where are you choosing something rather than obedience to Jesus? Anything I put before my God is an idol. Anything I want with all my heart is an idol. And we're called to repentance. Most, if not all of us, need to make some very practical changes, even today. There's sins we need to turn away from. We've grown comfortable with them. False gods that we're serving rather than serving Christ. If love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control don't describe your life, then, then repentance is necessary. Let me say it again. Think about these. If love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, if those things don't describe your life, if people wouldn't look at you and say, yep, those define that person, then repentance is necessary at some level in your life. Don't let your sin keep you from the abundant life that Christ has for us in the Spirit. Some of you will hear this. You'll hear what I'm saying, but you'll leave today and you'll walk right back to the gods that you love, the idols that you serve. Think about it from the context of last week. The Philistines, they had a front row seat for the power and the might of Yahweh. And they, they felt the, the pressure and the burden and the weight of Yahweh and they recognized it and they even felt guilty over what they had done and, and, and made these tumors and these rats and put them in a box and they sent the Ark of the Covenant back. And what did they do? They walked right back into their temple to Dagon, a lesser god, noted by the dismemberment of their idol. And they just continued to worship Ah, oh, today, please, repent. Turn from those idols. Turn to Christ. His way is far better, far superior. I'm not promising you that, that change will come overnight for you. I'm not demanding perfection of you. And by the way, neither is Christ. He understands who we are. But I am saying that you can't delay and continue bowing to the gods of this world. Too many of us have grown so accustomed 
to our sin. It, 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 we, we define ourselves by it. It, it describes us. And that, that growing accustomed to our sin and our idols, it undermines the work that the Spirit wants to do in your life and in your family and in this church and in this community and in the world. All of that is incumbent upon our repentance. It's a call to act today, to confess your sin to Christ, to plead for mercy and to plead for grace to grow and to change, to confess to another brother or sister and say, listen, uh, here's what I'm struggling with and I need some help, I need some prayer, I need some accountability in my life. Return to the Lord with all your heart and put away the foreign gods. Well, the Philistines get word that Israel has gathered together at Mitzvah. And uh, this is probably something that they told them you shouldn't do. Remember, Philistine seems to be in the position of power at this point. And so they'd probably told them, you gather together like that, we're going to come at you. And that's exactly what happened. They think that Israel's probably gathering together to plot a revolt against their power and their authority. They don't understand that Israel's actually gathered together for the purpose of repentance. And so the Philistines say, let's get our army together and let's go. And that's exactly what they do. Well, the Israelites get word that the Philistines are coming. And I love what happens here. It does show the heart of Israel at this particular point. What is their knee-jerk reaction this time? They go to Samuel and they say, will you pray to Yahweh that he would fight for us? They got it right. Finally, we should give them a hand. They got it right. Israel did what they were supposed to do in that particular moment. Here's what he says. Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. Just a chapter earlier, they're taking the Ark of the Covenant out, trying to twist Yahweh's arm into fighting for them. But now in humility, they come before him and say, listen, we can't do this. You have to do this. Their only weapon this time was prayer. And they got it. And listen, we've got to get that too. Our weapon is prayer. It's what we're left with. The Spirit has to work. And so Samuel then takes a young lamb and he offers it as a whole burnt offering uh, to the Lord. And the text describes it this way, that, that while Samuel is there, probably in the middle of the camp, offering this burnt offering, the Philistines are making their way close to the surrounding camps. And so all of these people are camped around Mitzvah, so the Philistines are almost upon them. Samuel's offering this offering and he is praying for Yahweh's protection. And at that time, Yahweh sends the thunder, the shock and the awe. So thunder, no doubt, with lightning. Uh, it's so loud that it sends the Philistines into just this tailspin of confusion. Uh, they're, they're freaking out a little bit because this is a bad omen. You go to do battle and all of a sudden thunder happens. You've offended the gods. Something's gone wrong. And so in that confusion, Israel is able to take up their swords and rout the Philistines all the way to Beth Carr. You know how far that is away? Neither do I. Um, neither does anybody. We don't know where Beth Carr is. So uh, if you do know, then please let me know. But I'm assuming it's a few miles away. So what's going on here in these verses? Israel is finally getting it right. We've seen this back and forth, this up and down, and here they're, they're finally getting it right. And, and when they're finally getting it right, what happens? The enemy attacks. 
we're in a wonderful place right now. We are, many of you have, have communicated it this way. I've said it this way. Over the past several months, really, we could go back a couple of years. Christ has just been doing an extraordinary work in the life of this, his church. And, and we rejoice in that. Um, a few weeks back, we were having our men's prayer meeting. And uh, I believe, and I'll say it this way, that God gave Dustin a prophetic word. So we were talking about how amazing it's been. And he came in that morning and he said, God's doing some things, but, but we need to watch out for the enemy's attacks. And I hadn't really thought about it up to that point, but that just really planted in my brain. And I've been mulling that over over the last few weeks, waiting for an opportunity to share with you, and then lo and behold, here we have a, a story, imagine that, that gives me a perfect opportunity to share some of those things with you. And so I want to share this with you. Watch yourself. Watch yourself. Satan is coming for your marriage. He's coming for your family. He may be coming through means of pornography, through some strange woman, strange man that he brings into your life. He may come through means of an argument that seems to have an impasse and there's a conflict and you want your way and they want their way and bitterness begins to set in. But he wants to destroy that. He's coming for our church. He wants to bring division and disunity into this body. He wants you to think, well, I want to do it my way, not this way. He wants to disrupt the work that the Spirit is doing right here. He's a roaring lion. And we have to understand this. He is seeking whom he may devour. And he wants to bring you down. He wants to bring the church down. He wants to do whatever he can to destroy the fame and the reputation of our incredible God. So Paul writes to Timothy, keep a close watch on yourself. Keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching and persist in this. For by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. You gotta watch yourself. And we also have to do this, Meadowview, we have to watch each other. We have to watch out for each other. Galatians 6 says, if you see a brother overtaken in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore them with the spirit of gentleness. And notice what he says here, keeping watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. And bear one another's burdens so that you may fulfill the law of Christ. And some of you may be thinking, Pastor, what are you talking about? I'm talking about what people have called spiritual warfare. That we're in a battle that's really unseen. Paul talks about it in Ephesians chapter 6. If you want to turn there with me, I would welcome you to do so. Ephesians 6 verse 10. I want you to see it, hear it. It's an important word for us to get here today. Ephesians 6, I'll start in verse 10.
Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, as a result of this battle that's raging around you, around your family and your marriage and this church, therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. And so stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet having put on the readiness given in the gospel of peace in all circumstances take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And I hope you see the urgency of Paul's plea. Paul had watched many of his own brothers and sisters in Christ overcome by the temptations that Satan brought into their life. He writes about it. He talks about them. And his tactics, let me tell you, they're not new. He'll go for your marriage. He'll try to put that wedge in there. As a matter of fact, uh, what it says in in Ephesians is... um, In Ephesians 4, if we were to look there, that that we must not let the sun go down on our wrath because it gives Satan a crack in the doorway. We have to deal with issues as they present themselves. He'll come for your family. He'll come through seasons of sickness. Yes, he will. He will cause divisions. He will bring doubt into your life. He will go for our doctrine and the things that we hold dear and we believe. He will distract us. We've got to be vigilant. We have to be vigilant. Hmm. I had two conversations this week. One was about a marriage. The Satan is just ruining a family through bitterness and anger. One was about a church that's being destroyed from the inside out because power. I want to call the shots. I want to be the one in charge. And let me tell you, Christ was doing an incredible work in that church. And a few people have, have, have at least at this point, upended it. And that breaks my heart. Both of those circumstances break my heart. And we have to be vigilant. Husbands, wives, moms, dads, church member, Christian, follower of Jesus, be vigilant. 
Watch for the schemes of the devil. Following Yahweh's victory, verse 12 tells us that Samuel, I would have liked to know more about that battle. You know, it's always, you get into these stories, you think, man, give me some details. I want to know about at least one guy like falling down the hill. He was so scared, but we don't get any of those details. We just, the battle's over. Yahweh won the victory. And what happens after is Samuel sets up a stone between Mitzvah and Shin. I don't know where Shin is either. But he names it a weird name. Ebenezer. Most of you, when I say the word Ebenezer, you go to Dickens, Christmas Carol, Ebenezer Scrooge. That's where my mind tends to go. Uh, but it's actually an ancient Hebrew word that, that really literally means a stone of help. And he goes on to describe it following, and he says, uh, till now the Lord has helped us. So Samuel sets up this stone and says, till now the Lord has helped us. You remember when Israel crossed uh, the Jordan River, uh, and we talked about it a little bit last week, the priests were carrying the ark, and as soon as they stepped in with the Ark of the Covenant, the waters parted, they were heaped up upstream, they were able to walk on dry ground. When they got to the other side, you remember what the command was? Get 12 stones and set them up as a monument. And the reason was because your kids are going to ask and your grandkids are going to ask someday, hey, why is there a pile of 12 stones out here by the Jordan River? And it's going to give you an opportunity to say to them, that was Yahweh's faithfulness. Let me tell you the story about that. It was a monument of remembrance. Samuel does something very similar here, uh, but, but intending for Israel to look here to the past faithfulness or hesed of Yahweh so that they might have hope for the future. Till now, the Lord has been our help. And if he's been our help until now, he will continue to be faithful. He will continue to help us as we move into the future. Samuel doesn't want them to forget all of the things that Yahweh has done for them. So he raises up an Ebenezer. Well, following the battle and the Ebenezer, Israel has rest. Verse 14 reveals that even the cities that the Philistines had occupied, they came back to Israel. Israel took possession of those cities. And then he points out that uh, the Amorites even were at peace with Israel. So, so their enemies to the west and the south, the Philistines, and the enemies to their east, the Amorites, they're at peace right now. Israel is enjoying a season of rest. And the chapter closes with a summary of the ministry of Saul there in Ramah. This is the new spiritual center for Israel. He builds an altar to the Lord there. Many of you, as we move forward, I know we don't have all the answers of what that looks like. But we move forward with an eye to the past. We move forward, but we're also looking back at the faithfulness of God. The faithfulness that he's shown us time and time again. We have to remember the, the faithful, the covenant faithfulness, the hesed of Yahweh towards us. Just like we did at the beginning of the service, the beginning of the sermon three years ago, this Ebenezer moment for us to look back and say, look what God has done. Up till now. We don't want to forget. Because here's the thing, Satan wants us to forget. Satan wants us to doubt the faithfulness of God when we enter into one of those temptations and battles. He wants us to doubt his goodness. And though I would love to 
take the time this morning for all of us to share our own personal Ebenezer moments because we all have them. We all have instances in our lives where we look back and we say, yes, I remember the faithfulness of God in that season of life. And I strongly encourage you to take that opportunity today. If you get to have lunch with your family or you get to visit with a friend, take some time and share some of those Ebenezer's from your own past where God has proven himself to be faithful, graciously intervening in your life. I know sometimes I give these little assignments and they may seem arbitrary to you. I hope, I hope you don't take them that way. Because one of the things we're trying to be more purposeful in and we want to be more bold in is, is the practicality of the Christian life. And these kinds of things are the practical things that are going to help build our faith. They're going to help build a stronger fellowship. And so I do strongly encourage you, engage in these conversations. Think through these questions that you find there on the bottom of your bulletin. But we all have one Ebenezer in common. And it's the Ebenezer of all Ebenezers. It's the one thing that really does draw us together here every week, week in and week out. What is that Ebenezer? It's the cross of Christ. It's what he's done for us in saving us. Just as Israel would look back to this rock that Samuel had named Ebenezer and remember and say, Yahweh helped us. We look back to the cross and we say, Yahweh helped us. He did what we could not do. He saved what we could not save ourselves. And we look to the cross, the ultimate monument of the faithfulness and the goodness of God. Paul said it this way in Romans 8. He says, what, what shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? And then he makes this statement. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He who did not spare his own son, how will he not also give us all things we need? Answer that question. Will he leave you? Will he abandon you now? No, up till now, he has been our help and he will continue to be our help. Have you come to a point where you've understood and accepted the faithful goodness of God that's been shown to you on the cross? The faithfulness of God to intervene in your desperate situation because you couldn't save yourself from your sin. Only Christ could do that. And that is the, the thing that we do have in common here is that we recognize that only Christ could do that. And if you've never come to a point to cry out to him and say, I need you to save me, may today be the day of salvation. I, I love that as, as this war is brewing around Israel, what, what's Samuel doing? He's offering a burnt offering. And as this war brews around us, as the enemy attacks, what do we look to? The sacrifice to end all sacrifices. We look to the cross and the price that Christ paid. 
Christian, what do you need to repent of today? What sin are you clinging to? What idol do you need to turn from? What practical steps are you going to take to turn from the idols, to turn to Christ, to love Him with all your heart, to get back to your first love? And finally, let me offer just one more plea for vigilance. Because the roaring lion is coming. For some of you, he's already pouncing. You feel it. We had a great time of prayer this morning for just some of our brothers in Christ who are just going through some difficult circumstances right now. He's pouncing. And we have to be ready as those temptations present themselves. Just ask Peter. Remember when Jesus said, hey, I'm... I'm going to, to die. And Peter says, I'll, I'll go with you. I'll never deny you. What did Jesus say to him? Peter, Satan desires to sift you as wheat. He wants to put an end to you. And then as only our Savior could say, but I've prayed for you. And you, I want you to know I'm praying for you. And I want you to know that right now, your Savior is praying for you and interceding for you no matter what you're going through. Peter thought he had this thing handled. Some of you are going to leave here today and you're going to think, I've got this handled. Be vigilant because he will pounce. Put on the armor of God. And isn't it interesting that all those pieces of armor that he describes, what do they relate back to? The cross, the gospel, the good news, this central thing that we all have in common. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world.